The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Cox, editor of Reuters Breaking Views in New York. This week, we're going to pick at an old scar. We're going to ask the question, why didn't anyone go to jail over the great financial crisis of 2008? It's a mystery that still nags lots of people of all political persuasions, but perhaps nobody more so than friend of the exchange, Jesse Isinger. In fact, he's written a whole new book trying to understand what happened and why nobody went to jail. The collapses of Bear Stearns and then Lehman Brothers ultimately necessitated close to a trillion dollars of taxpayer bailouts in the United States alone. The resulting turmoil incinerated billions of dollars of investor wealth and retiree savings. Wall Street's failures wound up torpedoing the global economy and led to millions of job losses. And yet, there were no criminal indictments of top dogs. Executives like Lehman Brothers boss Dick Fold merely retired to their Sun Valley lodges. Now, it wasn't always this way. Just a few years before the financial crisis, as Jesse argues, the failures of Enron and WorldCom and other corporate debacles led to time in prison for executives like Enron boss Jeff Skilling. Jesse argues that's because prosecutors joined the quote-unquote chicken shit club. That's not just the name of his new book. It's also what former FBI director James Comey, who used to be a criminal prosecutor, called prosecutors who wouldn't fight big cases. He called them chicken shits. Anyway, give it a listen. I got to ask you about the title of the book. The title comes from a speech that Jim Comey uh, none other than Jim Comey gave when the he fired was, FBI director. Yes, uh, you may know him from such uh, films as being fired by <laughs> Trump as his uh, the FBI director. But 15 years ago, he became the U.S. attorney in the Southern District. Mm. Uh, he replaces Mary Jo White, who is a legend at the time, uh, beloved U.S. attorney. She, of course, goes on to be a criminal defense lawyer for Debevoy's Plimpton, and then the head of the SEC under Obama. Anyway, but at this point, she's left. People are a little worried. Uh, they don't know who's going to come in. It's the Bush administration. Most of these guys are Democrats and the prosecutors in the Southern District. And in comes Jim Comey, and he's a veteran of the office and right. uh, w- widely respected. And he One of his first acts is to go attend the meeting of the criminal uh, team, the criminal group of prosecutors, and uh, they're about to give the box score where they give the Mm -hmm. uh, win-loss, who's won and who's lost uh, trial in uh, the last month. Yeah. And he says, uh, hold on, I got a few words. And he loves speaking, as you can tell, you know, and he loves He's a grandstander, according to the president. uh, Well, that's the, may be the one accurate thing that uh, <laughs> Donald Trump has ever uttered. Um, that is true, but he's also a truth teller. And uh, so he gets up and he's about to lay down some truth on these guys. Um, and they're all very eager and they sort of sit forward in their chairs. And he says, so how many of you have never lost a case? And these guys, you have to understand, the the prosecutors in the Southern District are really the best of the best of the best. They've gone to the best high schools to get to the best colleges, to get to the best law schools, to get to the best These are the guys in billions uh, that Um, Showtime These are the guys in billions. Uh, (laughs) Sadly, billions, I think, is... uh, Portrays them um, the wrong way. Yeah. uh, I don't think it gets anything right, especially Giamatti's character. Um, But uh, anyway, which is what who Comey was. 
but these guys really are, you know, and they've gone all to the best schools and gotten the best grades, and they um, they also, of course, think of themselves as the best and the brightest. Right. Uh, the youngest, you know, most of them are young trial lawyers, and so a bunch of hands shoot up, you know, very proudly. They they've say, all you know, they're all, most of them are very proud of their undefeated record. Mm. And Comey says, well, me and my buddies have a name for you guys, the Chicken Shit Club. You know, and the hands go down. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so what did he mean by that? What he goes on to say is you are not there to win cases. You are not there to protect an undefeated record. And if you are doing so, you are not taking on ambitious enough cases. Mm-hmm. You are not doing justice. Your right. job is to do justice and to seek righteous cases. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. A jury is unpredictable. But your job is not to take the easy cases, the low-hanging fruit. Your jobs are to take on the most urgent issues, uh, cases, wrong, right. wrongdoers um, e- of the moment. So let's step back. So the why you wrote this book. I mean, yeah. I know I think you and I spoke throughout the financial crisis and post and I know you have a strong view that um, that uh, that people on Wall Street numbers of people of Wall Street bank CEOs should have gone to jail or should have been prosecuted yes. and weren't without had I mean so this was the inspiration I imagine, that's the impetus your- of the book yeah um, I wrote a series of stories on the CDO business uh, with a colleague of mine at ProPublica but uh, lots and other mm. people wrote lots of great reporting on countrywide on Lehman Brothers on uh, the mortgage business, on the CDO business, on many other um, aspects, on AIG. Um, And then we waited around for the investigations and the indictments and the prosecutions, and I assumed dozens and dozens of people would go to prison. I still think that they should have. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, no one went to prison. You know, one, I wrote a story for the New York Times Magazine that's kind of launched the book where I wrote about the one. This is the Credit Suisse guy. Credit Suisse guy, Kareem Sarah-Geldon, is the one banker sort of uh, executive, mid-level executive from, you know, Credit Suisse, which is not exactly Central American bank um, who went to prison for the financial crisis activities. Um, it's it was Everyone a terrible paid huge part. fees. Uh, almost fines. every single bank mostly out of shareholders' pockets. Exactly um, paid billions and billions in fines for a v- wide variety of um, misdeeds, and, and that was it. No CEOs of any banks, no top executives of any banks, no board members, no accountants, no mm, lawyers, mm. no nobody. Um, so this was a great puzzle to me, and I started wondering about it. And the thing that I realized was that this goes beyond the financial crisis right. and beyond the banks. This began bef- this problem that we have, and the problem is that w- this country has lost the will and ability to prosecute top corporate executives. The Department of Justice, the federal government, um, the SEC, we don't do this anymore in this country. We have in the past, and we don't do it anymore. Well, let's go into the past a little bit, because you, 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 you chronicle some of the instances where indeed yeah. they did. I think uh, Enron was a good, is a good test case. Yeah, Enron uh, and the Enron era prosecutions, Enron, yeah. WorldCom, Tyco, uh, Global Crossing, these were um, the sort of the last high watermark. Mm-hmm. And what I say in the book is that there's never been a golden age where uh, true right. wealthy malefactors had to fear for their safety uh, and were sure to get imprisoned. But there have been silver ages. And the last silver age was that period uh, in the early 2000s, um, in the early ju- 
George W. Bush years where we did successfully prosecute many of the top companies that committed accounting fraud. So I focus on Enron and the inside yeah. story of Enron, and Enron provides a lot of lessons, I think, for prosecutors of today. Cases are extremely complex. You need a team. You need to have the adequate resources to do this. You need to roll up individual low-level people who will testify against well, the that seems to be a key people. point that you that make is there. exactly and that is the model for these investigations there needs to be someone who witness. goes on the stand exactly and says I did something wrong and my boss told me to do it and he knew about it or she knew about it and uh, my boss is sitting right there and that's effectively um, how Andrew Fastow for instance fast out well fast um, gets prosecuted but then rolls up on skilling and lay right um, right the uh, two C CEOs, Lay is the founder. Or, Lay um, dies, but Skilling goes to jail. Lay is found guilty. Um, right. And both are found guilty at trial. Lay dies right. before he is sentenced. And so, in fact, uh, you know, his sentence is exhumed. But uh, I, uh, um, I, don't, uh, I don't chastise the government for uh, having your guy die on you. That's just, uh, <laughs> I, you know, good luck. You know, uh, Lay, Lay escaped that one. But um, my contention, of course, this is unfalsifiable. My view is that the government could not prosecute Lay and Skilling today we would not be successful. That, on reflection, it seems so obvious to us that that was a fraud. And on reflection, we think those guys were obviously complicit. In fact, those were very difficult cases to make. Um, Lay and Skilling barely put anything in writing and no emails. There was very little damning direct evidence. Um, And uh, the fact that there wasn't reasonable doubt in the jury's mind about these guys' activities well, well, is due to good prosecutorial well, Why work. couldn't – you say they wouldn't do it today or they couldn't do it today? I think they have both problems. They've right. lost the will and they lost the ability. So um, I think that they are – extremely trepidatious about taking on CEOs mm-hmm. um, for major companies. Um, and they the reason why they're so worried and fearful and concerned about um, not having the evidence is that they don't have the ability to develop the evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of the lost skill. And um, the reasons why the Department of Justice has lost this kind of skill set and then which has led them to this trepidation are laid out in the book in what I hope is a very interesting and exciting narrative, of course. It's not just a, <laughs> it's <laughs> it's not not just a, a polemic. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I mean, how much of it is, is a consequence of the sort of revolving door? I mean, prosecutors who go on and then work for some of these giant companies or work for law firms that defend companies and they make, you know, 10 12x there what they would make as prosecutors. So how, how insidious it's a is this? major problem, and it is an insidious scandal. Um, it is not the only problem, and I try to lay out mm-hmm. other things that have gone wrong. Um, there's a lot of cultural problems at the Department of Justice having to do do with their own internal fiascos and um, the lessons that they've drawn from from those fiascos, which are, I think are the wrong lessons. But the revolving door is a terrible problem, and what we have in this country, and it's not appreciated fully, is that we have outsourced and privatized corporate investigations to law firms. The law firms are hired by the corporations themselves. So Mm -hmm. we have outsourced criminal investigations 
to the criminal organizations themselves who hire the law firms. And the law firms, who do they hire? Well, they hire former prosecutors. And so there is a terrible problem of a revolving door where the prosecutors now are attempting to what they do is they receive internal investigation reports from law firms that mm-hmm. have been hired by the companies themselves. Those reports are written by their boss's former boss. Right. And they're written by their boss or boss's former boss who they aspire to go work for. The Department of Justice has become essentially a postdoctoral, post-jurist doctor education for young prosecutors who then go become criminal defense lawyers. Right. Well, you see this almost in every single major criminal case. You see internal investigations conducted by an outside law firm. So in the Walmart bribery scandal, in the GM scandal, uh, they hire outside law firms. The outside law firms do, do the investigations. The the Department of Justice sort of purports to do its own investigation, but really what that amounts to is reviewing what the internal investigation what they've been given has, by the, what they've been given. So exactly. what's the remedy for that? Is it just more resources for the prosecutors? or is So there are a variety of remedies. Uh, the first is that they need to be paid more. Um, they need to have more resources, and prosecutors should be paid more. They probably should be paid. They roughly top out at 100 $50,000 a year, you know, even two salaries uh, in New York, in D.C., that's, that's it's hard to live on that um, for these kind of professionals, especially when the amount of money that is dangled from them from, you know, millions of dollars a year as a yeah, par- partner like at a law firm. Law so school, they should triple already, the salaries. Yeah, exactly. Um, it would be absolutely worth it. This should be regarded as a an extremely uh, prestigious job that you could spend your whole career at and live comfortable a comfortable upper middle class life without having to resort to without having exactly yeah. so that's step number one step number two is that the priorities need to change they need to focus on individuals uh, individual prosecutions they have to change the culture so that they're not so afraid of winning uh, of losing cases because they are very afraid of hence losing the chicken cases shit and hence the chicken shit club and then I think you overhaul the recruiting um, at the Department of Justice. What you want to do is have much greater diversity in the hires. And I don't mean just racial and gender diversity as we talk about it traditionally. What I'm talking about is professional experience diversity. So um, I, you want to draw from different law schools than the four or five elite law than schools. Than like Yale Law School exactly. and Harvard. Um, and you know, Columbia. those put out very good um, people, but you want you want different people. You want d- people from a different class milieu um, growing up. You want a g- geographical diversity. Then you want I w- would like them to draw from plaintiffs' firms, from consumer defense firms. Um, you want a much wider variety of people who who have a young professional background. What a guy told me who wants to go in to become a prosecutor in the Southern District and really wants to prosecute. Um, companies. He told me that his advice, he just got this advice, and he said, you could work in a government position and maybe in five or six years you could get to the Southern District of New Mm -hmm. York. If you wanted to 
do it more quickly, go to a top law firm. Go to Debevoise or Paul Weiss or Covington. And in 18 months, you can, if you've worked for the right people and get the right recommendation, you can get to the Southern District. Right. Um, so who in their right mind would toil yeah. away in some sleepy and uh bureaucratic job for six years when in a year and a half they could be um, they could cut the line of course in that year and a half they get a taste of the life of big law which is not a pleasant life uh, whatsoever but uh, you, you're making a ton of money yeah I walked out of a, a Sullivan and Cromwell thing yesterday and it's around 830 at night and you could see just out in front the 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 line of delivery food bags you know like deliveries that were just waiting for these poor guys yes, who are going to go exactly work, it's work a brutal career well that brings me to my next solution uh, or my next proposal which is to get some of these guys not at the beginning of their careers but the end of their careers it's right. such a brutal life that there are plenty of partners who would pr- would love to stay in law but give it up um, and maybe have made the money give them the jobs as prosecutors when they're done with they're not seeking to revolve back out into the market, and they're not seeking to raise their profile or burnish their resumes, not like Eric Holder, who went from the DOJ to Covington and Burling to the DOJ back to Covington and Burling. Right. You want these guys who are done with corporate law to come back and be prosecutors. They know where the bodies are buried. They right. know all the tricks from the defense lawyers and the corporations. Those would be great people, and they're people who would like to do this kind of public service, but they hardly are required recruited anymore. And that's yeah. a shame. How, how much of what's happened since, let's go back to the, the, the as you call it, the silver age of, yeah. you know, the Enrons and Worldcoms and Tycos. Um, how much is it really just that corporations have become more resilient, have got better defense systems, have come up with, um, you know, deferred prosecution agreement, you know, all, all the things that we've seen then, that yeah, since then that, that have sort of, it's not just that the prosecutors are, have, have not kept up. It's actually the other side is yeah, that's that's expenses. a big that's a big focus in the book is that so there've been a couple of things that have happened. One is that there've been a series of very bad rulings for prosecutors, good rulings for white-collar defendants, right. corporate defendants in uh, from the Supreme Court and from the influential appeals courts, D.C. Circuit and the Second Circuit. Second Circuit actually turns out to be pretty hostile to prosecutors when they're trying to prosecute corporate wrongdoers. Um, and the courts have been much nicer to white-collar defendants mm-hmm. than they are to street criminals and violent offenders. Um, a, a terrible problem in our jurisprudence, but it really hurts the prosecutors, and the prosecutors sort of throw up their hands and say, what can we do? So that's an issue. The other issue is that companies have built in layers of compliance, lawyers and accountants and compliance officers, they've surrounded themselves and the top executives have insulated themselves um, from decision-making authority by these layers and layers of uh, protection. Um, Now, uh, that is a, a terrible but they've um, had to sign the accounts as Sarbanes-Oxley, which was a post. Yeah, they uh, still, they, exactly. They still have responsibility. They still sign the accounts. Um, and I think it requires prosecutors to start thinking much more creatively about these things. For one thing, 
Um, in the 1970s, uh, which is one another silver age that I locate, um, 60s and 70s with Robert Morgenthau as the U.S. attorney mm-hmm. in the Southern District and the guy named Stanley Sporkin, who's kind right. of a legend um, I- at the SEC, what they did is they went after the gatekeepers. They went after lawyers bankers and accountants the people who enabled the fraud mm-hmm. they were sort of they were focused on individuals they were sort of less interested in just getting the ceo from a bad company because they wanted to get these people who were the gatekeepers to the capital markets right. at these kind of firms um, we hardly do that anymore so we didn't go after the lawyers who were advising all these banks on their mortgages. But what the lawyers provided really were sort of formed the backbone of the defense of um, these guys who did mortgage securities or did CDOs and things like that. So, um, so one thing is I think that you need to focus on the gatekeepers. The other thing is you need to focus on other charges. One thing that they neglect is a kind of willful blindness, um, looking the other way. And the CEOs construct their business very often so that they can look the other way when bad things happen. Um, and if you can't get CEOs, you get the high up level, you know, the guy sure. who's running the bond business, uh, the guy who's running the division, the guy or gal right. who's running the division. Um, and as I say earlier on, you know, this is not just a bank issue. This is um, at industrial companies and retailers and right. tech companies. Um, so what you want to do is try to move up the chain as high as you can instead of be satisfied, being satisfied with one low-level yeah. schmuck. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the Southern District, certainly there were a lot of prosecutions successful ones uh on inside insider trading yeah exactly so uh, and preet barara who, who ran that division certainly i think he claimed like 70 80 scalps uh, yeah on that i mean you have though a skeptical view of that don't you yeah, I think um, Preet, uh, for all his prowess, and, Preet, who was, I should um, also add, was fired by President Trump. Right. You know, now Preet has ascended, just like Jim Comey, to hero status. Anybody who um, gets caught in the crosshairs of Trump is now uh, a hero, especially in, in certain quarters. Uh, you know, I think Preet is no hero when it comes to Wall Street prosecutions. He has been lauded as the sheriff of Wall Street, the guy who busted Wall Street, and I think that's just a myth. I think that is. Um, uh, but he has put these um, insider so traders. He in. put insider traders to prison, and so what is that? Well, first of all, I think insider trading is a a real misdemeanor crime. Um, it is a crime with very few victims. If anything, the victims are, are often big investors or the big banks themselves. Um, this is not the kind of systemic issue that led to the financial crisis where regular people, regular Americans were immiserated. Mm-hmm. Um, well, a market so, crashed. Thousands of jobs were lost. Uh, exactly. People lost their were homes. Um, homes. Uh, and so, uh, one, I think that it's a, uh, it was a terrible um, misallocation of resources to focus on insider trading at the premier office um, that is in charge of regulating and policing our, not regulating, but policing mm-hmm. our, our banks and um, our capital markets. So uh, the other thing was that he, insider trading is an easier charge. Um, sure. Juries understand it. Um, they had wiretaps, and they 
love direct evidence, like uh, bad hedge fund managers saying stupid stuff right. um, in the middle of the night, destroying evidence. Um, they love that stuff. And I talked to a prosecutor once who said, look, we would go and we were listening to these wiretaps and we were in the room um, listening to these guys do bad things and admit to crimes. And then I'd look on the other side of the desk and I'd see um, hundreds and hundreds of papers with a CDO prospectus. Right. And just it's a human thing thing to gravitate to one um, easy win the easy win rather than the really complex charge where you don't even know if there's a crime committed which is why leadership comes in leadership has to say these are your priorities this is what we're looking at we're going to focus on on this we're going to focus on the CDO market we're going to focus on Lehman Brothers we're going to focus on Citigroup or AIG or something like that so I think it was a terrible misopportunity and then what happened as you alluded to Preet had an undefeated record. I think he went at some point over 80 to nothing before uh, losing a couple of cases and having some reversals. Um, And that became uh, an end in and of itself. Their nervousness about preserving their their spotless record, this undefeated record, and their pride in this yep. record, their misplaced pride in that. They really, stopped bringing the um, prosecutions. They stopped bringing the prosecutions, and they stopped bringing it at Stevie Cohn at SAC, which I think is a travesty. I think that right. um, that case, that individual, Stephen Cohn, should have been brought to trial. He should have been indicted. And then we would see whether a jury thought he was a criminal or not. And that would have been a big, that would have been, that would have qualified, I think, as a pretty big take. That would have, and it, it, what I think it, much bigger than Raj Rajaratnam. Yeah. I mean, they did go after some powerful. Who did go to um, jail. Yeah, they did go after some powerful people in the insider trading case at Goldman um, director, Raj Rajaratnam, was in prison, um, but not Stevie Cohn. I think Stevie Cohn really um, exemplifies this um, cowardice because, you know, they charged the firm with criminal, and the firm pled guilty to crimes. Right, and they stopped managing Um, They had multiple people who ate, I think, um, pled guilty or were found guilty of crimes, and Stevie Cohn, that firm was the embodiment of Stevie Cohn. If you can't prosecute the individual there, what are you doing? I mean, what what use is it to prosecute yeah. a corporation when the, the corporation is the embodiment of the person? There's a mild argument that Jamie Diamond as a corporation should. I mean, excuse me, that J.P. Morgan, Morgan yeah. as a corporation is not solely about Jamie Diamond, and so there's. But well, this some, is also remember the Anderson. You wrote about this in the book as well. Arthur well, Anderson. exactly. So a sort of there's a, a trepidation on the part of prosecutors to indict a company that employs thousands right. and thousands of people, feeds families, blah, exactly. blah, blah. So the beginning of this crisis, I locate yeah. with the Anderson case, and I'm not the only one to do so, but um, but the book tries to rehabilitate the Anderson prosecution. My argument is that Anderson was a, a corrupt institution, um, a serial malefactor, and people were aware recidivist. of that already. Um, oh, yes. And, um, and they destroyed documents, and they should have been prosecuted, um, and the jury found them guilty. Uh, and the jury was uh, was presented with all the evidence um, and was reasonably thoughtful about it, slightly quirky. But what happens after the Anderson case is the Department of Justice draws the wrong lesson from Anderson. They draw the lesson that that was overly zealous, that they shouldn't have done that, that they threw people out of, of their jobs, tens of thousands of people, and that they should worry more about the collateral consequences of their prosecutions. Mm. And that is an extraordinary 
PR victory by Anderson. So, you know, Anderson had to die so that other bad companies could live free without the fear of being indicted um, for their crimes. And the Department of Justice learns we'll never do that again. We're right. not going to we're not going to indict a big company. Do you think that's why? So, let, I mean, just to sort of think about the financial crisis, think about the big the big whales, the whales that yeah. you, you argue probably should have gone to jail. Who were they? Who was the sort of most obvious of that group? That You mean you the think, individuals? Yeah, I mean individuals that should have been prosecuted well, so, and where um, there was a decent case. Look, I'm not a lawyer, and the book is not um, a legal brief mm-hmm. about individuals, um, which individuals should have gone to prison. What I'm trying to do is um, – illustrate what the systemic problems are. I show why what went wrong with the AIG investigations. I show what went wrong with the Lehman Brothers investigations. I show um, what went wrong with a variety of other investigations. But um, when, you know, when I think of people who probably should have been indicted or prosecuted. You know, I think of people like Angelo Mozillo at Countrywide or Dick Fold or and, you know, the COO or the top officers at, at Lehman Brothers. I think that those people, top executives at AIG, I think those people probably should have been indicted. And whether they would have found guilty or not, it's not up to me and it's not up to the prosecutors. But it would have been worth a try um, is what you're uh, saying. It yeah. would have been, it would have served a function to air this evidence in public and see if the juries would agree with the prosecutors. Um, sometimes you have to take a risk. Yeah. And the risk I can see how it would have um, been very difficult to say that, you know, a guy like Fold who lost a, whatever, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And no of his no white-collar prosecution you know, is easy. No. Um, and Lay lost money, too, ultimately, when Enron went down. And Skilling did, too, although they took a lot of money out. Mm. Uh, but Lay had, I mean, uh, Fold had taken a lot of money sure. out. So these are complex. These people are well defended. They've got extremely smart, experienced lawyers on the other side. And juries, you know, some juries are smart, some juries are not. Juries are quirky, juries are unpredictable. But it serves justice to air evidence publicly. And if you're not going to have any trials, then you're not doing justice. And if they had done 10 cases and lost all 10, there would be a lot more credibility to their argument that, look, there are no prosecutorial, prosecutable crimes here. Because um, yeah. the prosecutors say, oh, you know, we didn't see enough evidence. There wasn't enough evidence that uh, that's there. And we can't really refute that because we can't really see all the things that they saw. What we can see is the pattern. And the other thing is that if you re- get a prosecutor on his or her own in a quiet bar after one or two drinks, they'll so you say— just, this is your reporting yeah, I uh, don't want to give any uh, <laughs> secrets away, but uh, yes, uh, maybe. You know, none of them will say um, there were no prosecutable, prosecutable crimes. Mm. None. They will all say, look, I didn't see it because they want to preserve their own integrity. No one will say I, like, I got, took a dive on a case that it, we should have been ma- making. But they'll say, I can't believe X wasn't prosecuted. Right. I can't believe Y wasn't prosecuted. I don't understand. So, where's, so where's, where's the future of all this uh, excitement and fraud? Like, I mean, it's, yeah, so the, future if the banks worse, have gotten away worse. with it. Let's, let's not litigate that. Yeah. Where, where do you see you know, I think it's going to be your reporting um, next, I guess. Yeah, there's a there's going to be an orgy of criminal activity at uh, corporations under the Trump administration because the Jeff Sessions DOJ is going to lay off. 
Yeah. Um, and so none of the reforms that uh, I'm proposing are going to be taken. Um, and uh, what's really interesting is that uh, you know that the George W. Bush administration was so aggressive about uh, prosecuting um, these. Well, as you lay it out, I mean, Kenny Boy was exactly. Uh, you know, a I pal mean, of it's the Bush remarkable family. that um, that they went after one of the um, top political donors and friends of the Bush family. That the Bush administration, DOJ, did that, and that's a testament to Larry Thompson, his, his deputy attorney general, and Bob Mueller, who uh, you uh, may have heard of, is yes. now special counsel for Trump, um, who's then the head of the FBI. And um, unfortunately, there was this law and order strain in the Republican Party um, that really wanted to preserve capital markets for capitalists no, and, and the rule of law and, and the rule of law they believed in it and in, ironically think I think it's totally administration changed. no I think there's crony capitalism now and um, there is no rule of law um, strain of the Republican Party um, now and I don't think that the Jeff Sessions DOJ is going to I hope them wrong I, I you know I would gladly admit that I'm wrong but I just don't see it I got to say, I used to take issue with Jesse's views on whether executives like Fold should have gone to jail. I mean, it's hard to prove that these guys committed crimes when they themselves lost hundreds of millions of dollars of their own money. But, you know, looking at his book, listening to him uh, and looking at his analysis resonates with me. I think I think one could make the argument that the government sure as hell had a duty to try to assert some accountability for what happened through the courts, come what may. Anyway, that's it for now. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Exchange Podcast. I'd like to thank our producers, Bethel Hobte, Kate Duguid, and Andrew D'Antonio, and for all of you listening. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out on BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, at BreakingViews and at Rob1Cox. Thanks for tuning in, and adios. Adios.